Therefore, do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food and drink, or of observing festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. These are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Do not let anyone disqualify you, insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels, dwelling on visions puffed up without cause by a human way of thinking, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the universe, why do you live as if you still belonged to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All these regulations refer to things that perish with use. They are simply human commands and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-imposed piety, humility, and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value in checking self-indulgence. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. The word of the Lord. We're excited that you're worshiping with us here today in what is a very packed house. Thankfully, our loud air conditioners are working at peak performance. We, uh, as we noticed earlier, we have visitors of uh, Pathfinders from uh, Italy and Germany. We also had a, a large group from France here at our early service that's stuck around with us as well. We have people from all over the place. Our senior pastor right now is in the exotic, beautiful, far-off land of Michigan. Um, so we're, we're missing him, and uh, he is missing all of you uh, today as well. We're in the middle of a Colossians series. Uh, if you haven't been around, uh, we've been doing this for a few weeks now. And um, we are now closing up chapter 2 and, and jumping in to chapter 3. Colossians is a letter written by Paul to the church in Colossae, a part of what is now uh, Turkey. And so uh, it's important to keep in mind that Paul is writing to a specific group of people at a specific time in history about specific issues he knew they were dealing with. Um, that being said, as a tradition and as a community that values Scripture, we think that it's in the Bible for a reason, and so therefore it can mean something to us today. As is usually the case with any of Paul's writings, there is a high Christology, or this is the idea that uh, Christ and his supremacy as God, as one and the same with God, is a central theme, and you could hear that in the text of emphasis we just read. Another thing that Paul often uses, and he does again here, is um, a couple examples or illustrations or analogies that are uh, probably a little bit more particular to his context than, um, than we would understand today. One being the body that everything comes from the head and goes down. That's not necessarily how we would explain our physiology nowadays, but let's give him a, a break and, and go with it. And, uh, and, and this idea of spiritual things versus um, flesh 
things and the, the dualistic kind of separation between those two things. So that's, that's setting the table, that's giving us context of what we're talking about today. Now, I would guess that a lot of us had a specific reaction to some of the things that were said in this text um, if we were listening. It's, if you weren't listening, that's fine. I often am on my phone during that portion too. We'll read it again. Um, but I, I would say those, those, uh, those reactions fall into three different groups. The first group, you have no clue what we're talking about. Paul's references to visions, regulations, disqualifications, setting your minds above, these do not ring any bells for you. You're confused as to why we're talking about this. We'll call this first group, who cares? I'm sorry that you're confused. Hopefully you won't be by the time we're done. The second group, based on your reaction to some of the things said in this text, would be the people that have been accused of doing the things that this passage is condemning, the people that Paul is talking to, maybe, or talking about. See, Seventh-day Adventists tend to value things that other denominations may not in the same particular way, and so this passage is one that's often used to refute those things that can be peculiar about Adventists. We are a tradition that values visions, that talks about what angels do and do not do, that submits to regulations, that observes the Sabbath, that thinks food and drink matter. For those that disagree with the traditional Seventh-day Adventist observance of these and other issues, Paul's words in this passage are often used as a weapon to condemn. So for those of you that heard that and thought that Paul might be getting a little too carried away, and I know that some of you are here this morning, it's okay, we'll call you, wait. These things are important. Group three. I know we have some people from this group. This might even be the largest group. You hear this passage, and you completely resonate with what Paul is saying. You might even have a visceral, emotional reaction. You think of the parent that made you observe the Sabbath their particular way. You think of the elder who humiliated you for wearing jewelry or makeup. You think of the Sabbath school teacher that told you not to go to the movies because your angel wouldn't follow you into the theater. You think of the pastor who put too much emphasis on a certain prophetess's visions. You think of all the people that have made you submit to restrictions and regulations. So when you hear Paul talking about these things, you want him to keep going. You're loving this listing that he's giving. You want him to keep calling these people out. We'll call this group the, mm-hmm. <laughs> We've got our three groups. The confused, what are we even talking about? The, no, Paul, this stuff's actually important. And the, yeah, Paul, you better preach. We heard this idea of self-serving bias, or um, maybe explained a little bit more clearly, this idea that we ascribe motivations to everyone in our lives, including ourselves, and that we tend to ascribe uh, neutral or positive motivations to ourselves. 
and we tend to ascribe negative motivations to people that we disagree with or people that do something uh, we don't like. This happens all the time in our lives, whether we realize it or not. The, the example I've heard most commonly given is driving. If you're driving and you cut someone off, it's because it was an act, you didn't mean to, it was an accident, you're sorry, um, and they were going too slow anyways. Whoops, I never do that. If someone else cuts you off, they're a reckless driver, they're selfish, they're just a bad person. Um, for those of you New Yorkers who don't drive, uh, you could say the same thing for the subway. The person that doesn't give up their seat. If you're sitting on the subway and you don't give up your seat, oh, it's because I had a hard day and I, I gave up my seat on the last train and, you know, um, it's, I really just need to take a break this time. Someone else that's younger than me or more athletic can give up their seat, it's fine, right? I'm not hurting anyone. Whereas if someone else doesn't give up their seat to the older or disabled or pregnant person, the reaction is, oh, this selfish, lazy, greedy person. This is probably most potently noticed uh, in our political lives. I don't know if you've heard, but the United States is kind of going through a thing right now with politics. For the entity that's in charge of the executive branch at this time and that entity's allies, they view the resistance, the self-titled resistance, as motivated by laziness or jealousy or a desire to destroy American identity and traditional values. Whereas that resistance might look at those in power and see that they're motivated by hate, greed, desire to maintain their privilege and oppress anyone who doesn't fit an outdated view of national identity. But what if we were to try to compensate or correct for this motivation um, that we place on other people? What if to the powerful, the resistance, the possibility could be thought that they're motivated by wanting to see the less fortunate thrive, by wanting to see the powerful be held to the same standards as everyone else, by wanting all Americans to feel proud of their identity no matter what? What if to the resistance, the powerful, maybe it could be considered that they just want to retain the values their parents passed on to them that gave their life meaning. That they just want to reward those people that work hard. That they are just standing up for what they believe in no matter how unpopular it is because God wants them to. Now, none of these descriptions are completely accurate for any of these groups and I think it's important that we tell truth to power and stand up for what we believe as Christians. Um, I think the example Annette gave in the kids feature of the climb march was a perfect example. Um, so I'm not saying that we don't have convictions, we don't stand up for them, but what if our gut reaction, what if our initial step was to first consider maybe the motivation behind this thing I disagree with is similar to my motivation? What if we try to put ourselves in each other's shoes. Now, this compassionate way of thinking is helpful when we read a passage like this, where it's very clear that there are two sides of this issue in Colossae, and probably to those of us hearing it now. If we're in group two, the wait, this stuff is important, 
Maybe we can learn to show grace and compassion to those that don't agree with our interpretation of what's important and how it's important, who don't see the value in submitting to regulations. If we're in group three, the mm-hmm, maybe we can forgive those that have tried to enforce their standards upon us and look for the good behind that action. No matter what, we can at least try to do better than Paul does in this passage of stepping into someone else's shoes and seeing the other side with empathy. As helpful as this way of thinking is for how we treat each other and how we interact with those different from us, it's actually not the point of what Paul is talking about at all. It's very clear what he thinks of the people in Colossae who are arguing over which rules and practices are important and which traditions or mindsets to abide by. He wants everyone on the same page. He thinks there is one thing and one thing only that is important regardless of anyone's opinions on anything else. So let's go back to the text, dive a little bit deeper, starting with Colossians 2, verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food and drink or of observing festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. Sabbaths. What day is it again? Who condemns what you eat or drink? Has that ever happened to you? Who do you condemn for what they eat or drink or don't? Have you ever done that? I had a professor at one point in my life, a well-educated person with multiple uh, postgraduate degrees, an expert in certain theological issues, whose dietary restrictions were so important to them, their vegetarianism and their temperance or, or abstaining from alcohol was so important to them, and they were a person that believed in the Bible and, and that it was authoritative and, and they were a literalist with the Bible. Their vegetarianism was so important that they had concocted this idea that Jesus had done a miracle each time he ate a fish so that it wasn't actually meat when he ate it, and it was vegetarian. Now, I'm certain that Jesus could have done something like this. I don't think there's any reason to think that he did. I also believe that Jesus could have made a DeLorean time travel car, but I don't think he did. Um, and this professor similarly thought that Anytime he did the, the uh, water turning into wine or, or when he drank wine at a party or a meal, that he was miraculously changing it to non-alcoholic wine. This was all based in this person's dietary um, restrictions being so important to them in a traditional Adventist way. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, I have a friend now in my life who... Um, grew up as a traditional Seventh-day Adventist with um, the vegetarianism and, and the strictness of following that diet that can sometimes accompany a traditional Adventist upbringing. And this person is so tired and annoyed and triggered by vegetarianism that they just get upset whenever an Adventist is around them trying to be vegetarian for themselves. They're like, no, we need to eat meat, okay? I would argue that neither of these are the point. These, no matter whether it's the conservative or liberal, whatever end of the spectrum it's on, 
What Paul is saying is that condemning for your food and drink observance makes no sense. Verse 17, this is why. These are only a shadow of what is to come. The substance belongs to Christ. There it is, plainly. Your righteousness over following a food restriction or your boasting in how free you are to not follow that restriction are both shadows. They have no substance. Christ is the substance. This is Paul's one thing. Verse 18. Do not let anyone disqualify you, insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels, dwelling on visions puffed up without cause by a human way of thinking. There's a lot in this verse. Do not let anyone disqualify you. Who has disqualified you? Who is disqualifying you? Because of who you are, how you identify yourself? Whom do you disqualify? Because of who they are or what they believe. Next part, insisting on self-abasement. Self-abasement. This is like an ascetic, ascetic idea of belittling or humiliating oneself. These people that Paul is talking about are insisting on that and on the worship of angels. I can think of some people that could maybe be accused of being overly concerned with what angels are doing. They're dwelling on visions. I can also probably think of some people that may from time to time overemphasize the importance of certain individuals' visions. All of these things that Paul has just described, he says, are puffed up without cause by a human way of thinking. If we care about any of these things enough to disqualify someone from anything, we are puffed up without cause. We are too into that thing that does not even matter. Verse 19, he continues with his rant. And they are not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows with a growth that is from God. Here it is again, the one thing. If he is talking about us, then we are part of a headless body, concerned with what our fingernails look like, all the while oblivious to the fact that we're missing a head. We are literally a chicken running around with its head cut off. In verse 20, if with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the universe, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Man, if you're a Christian, why are you insisting that these things that are not Christ define you? Why do you submit to regulations? This might be the most uncomfortable thing that Paul is saying to Seventh-day Adventists. Now, maybe you're new 
to this uh, tradition within Christianity. Maybe you've spent your whole life in it, maybe somewhere in between. But suffice it to say that there are some people probably in this room, some people probably in our families, or that we've met throughout the years, maybe you've even felt this personally. Our whole religious life, our whole spiritual reality has been solely about submitting to regulations. 21, he quotes, Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Do not, do not, do not. How often are we defined by what we do not do, not by whose body we are a part of? Verse 22, he continues, All these regulations refer to things that perish with use. They are simply human commands and teachings. I think now is a good opportunity to bring up a counterpoint that I'm sure many of us are thinking ourselves or have heard told to us whenever a conversation like this begins. But without these regulations, what is the point of being a Seventh-day Adventist? Paul has a clear answer for us in verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-imposed piety, humility, and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value in checking self-indulgence. I cannot count the number of people I know. You probably know many yourself or have felt this way about yourself, for whom the seemingly wise restrictions of their religious upbringing have had no value in checking their self-indulgence. Chapter 3, he points it out and gives us the answer. See, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. If we don't have these regulations, what's the point of being Avenist? There's a better question. If we don't have Jesus, what's the point of being Avenist? That's the only question Paul cares about answering. That's the only question we should be concerned about answering. If our spiritual identity is tied up in what we do not do, watch out. If our religious experience is couched in the regulations we submit to, watch out. If our concern is over who is qualified and who is disqualified from being a part of the remnant people to whom we belong, watch out. We are puffed up without cause. If this is who we are, count me out. I want to be a part of the body Jesus has invited us into. I want to be hidden with Christ. I don't want to be the stomach of a headless body so full of the correct food and drink that I haven't noticed my head is missing. Christ is our life. He has been revealed and he will be revealed again. We will be with him in glory, not because of what we do, not because of what we do not do, but because of him. I'm a little 
into sneakers. If you come here on a regular basis, you're probably not used to seeing me like this. I'm usually wearing sneakers. And um, I'm, I'm into it probably a little too much. We all have a thing, or several things in my case that we're into a little too much. And um, one of the things around sneakers is that there's, there's sneaker heads, and then there's the, the uh, more extreme version, the hype beast. You may have heard of these terms. If not, the internet. Um, but this is the idea that these are people that um, there are shoes that are limited release or special or rare. Um, and so these people hunt for these shoes. And if they can't find them, they often buy them uh, on resale markets for several times the amount of the asking price. Now, I, I would not call myself a sneakerhead or a hype beast. I'm like adjacent to that world. But I had this one pair of shoes that I got really lucky to get. They were really uh, rare and popular. Everybody wanted them. And so the resale value was like crazy high. And I was lucky enough to get them just the regular price. And so every time I wear them, I feel like super cool, like, yeah. Um, but I was, uh, I was at a, a Christian like, conference last year. And there was, a, there was a, a pastor up front, a young guy, probably my age, maybe a year or two younger. And he had on those same shoes. And the whole time he's talking, I'm just thinking, man, what is up with this guy? Pastor with those shoes? I bet he bought them for like thousands of dollars or that he exploited somebody to get them or that, you know, his church gave him an offering. He spent it on this. That's bad stewardship. Like, or he's out here just trying to like flex and stunt on everybody, like trying to show how cool he is at this special Christian conference. That's all I was thinking about. And like halfway through this thought process, I was like, wait, wait, wait. I have worn those same shoes to my job as a pastor on multiple occasions. There I was ascribing and determining what his motivations were. Several months later, this uh, Instagram account took the Christian and sneaker worlds by storm, collided them together. It's called Preachers in Sneakers. It was all about these popular kind of celebrity evangelical pastors and the uh, very exclusive, often high-priced clothes that they wear any given Sunday. And so it, was, it would be a picture of the pastor in whatever outfit and then a screenshot of how much that outfit cost on the like industry standard resale site. And Instagram loved it because it was that thing that we like more than probably anything else when like someone's hypocrisy is revealed. It was, it was oh, here are all these pastors with these mega churches living off all the money that their people are sacrificially giving and they're spending it on thousands of dollars worth of clothes. I will not admit to you the amount of time that the Avon Hope pastoral staff spent on this Instagram. Um, but Todd and I were feeling very um, uh, nervous, and so we decided we're just not going to wear sneakers for a while. <laughs> and neither of us are particularly, you know, hype, but whatever. Um, and so as I was talking about this Instagram with people or thinking about it or, or thinking about this, this pastor that I had seen, I realized that at every step with each of these individuals or with each of these posts, I was trying to determine where to draw the line between myself and them. I shared a profession with them. I shared a fashion sense with a lot of what they, they wore. 
I shared a, a hobby, and all I could think about was, where is the line? What disqualifies them and not me, or vice versa? Who's in with me and who's out? This is the primary and oftentimes the only question we as Adventists are asking. We are part of the remnant. It is our responsibility to communicate where the lines are. It is our responsibility to communicate what qualifies or disqualifies someone to be in here with us. This is not dwelling on things of Christ. We need to stop puffing ourselves up without cause. What if the only way to be a part of the remnant was to be so focused on Christ that we forgot the remnant was a thing? What if the only way to be a part of the remnant was to love our neighbors so well that we couldn't find the line separating us from them, even if we wanted to? What if the only way to be a part of the remnant was to stop trying to be a part of the remnant? What if God's remnant people was all people? What if we didn't let anyone condemn us? What if we didn't condemn? What if we didn't disqualify anyone? What if we weren't disqualified? The truth is, Jesus is telling us this what if is already the case. He has hidden us in his love. He has put away these earthly shadows and has revealed to us his glory. Let us live, die, and live again with him in that glory together. Amen.